If you have your Bibles, open them to Genesis chapter 4. We're going to read this passage uh, starting in verse 17. This is the second half of this, this uh, act, this scene of these uh, murder, uh, Cain murdering his brother Abel, and then what happens to uh, Cain and his, his progeny uh, following that. And it really sets up some very important things. So uh, let's read this. Uh, uh, now hear God's word. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad. Erad fathered Mahujael. Mahujael fathered Methusael. Methusael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, the name of the other Zillah. Ada bore Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the harp, or the uh, pipe. Zilhah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal was Naamah. And Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zilhah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then let Lamech's be seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son, called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. So Seth also, a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. We've been looking at this uh, part of uh, the book of Genesis, which is called the primeval history. And it is uh, the first 11 chapters up to the life of Abraham. And we'll go through it uh, in the weeks to come as we have been doing. And I think it's important to understand the book of Genesis because one scholar said the end is pregnant with the beginning. And if you really get a handle on what's going on in these first few chapters, really chapters 1 through 3 and and part of 4, if you you really get an idea of what's going on there, your whole Bible will take on a different look. You'll see the big picture of what is happening in this world. And if you have questions, like every human being, why are we here? Why is there something instead of nothing? Why is there suffering? Why is there evil? Uh, What's going on with the devil and the serpent and all that? What's all that about? Uh, Why did Adam and Eve eat that fruit? What was wrong with them? Did God create them with a flaw? There, there are so many questions. Why, there, why is there racism? Why is there poverty? Why is there hatred? Why are human beings at war with one another? Uh, it, it just addresses almost every root issue that is in the human experience. And so I encourage you to come. We had a great uh, turnout this morning in our 9 a.m. Uh, Q&A. And if you have questions... Uh, related to the book of Genesis or really anything else, uh, join us at 9 a.m. Bring your kids. It's okay. And, uh, and we will uh, try to, to t- touch some of the things we can't go t- through in a, in a sermon. 
What we learn from Genesis is not material origins. We're not learning about how, scientifically, God created the world. Now, if you insist on that, you're going to lose a lot of the meaning that is in the Bible. So whether you're a creationist, seven-day creationist, or whether you're an evolutionary, whatever creationist, you have to understand that both of those groups are looking at the observable world and making theories and ideas of how it could have happened, how the world could have come to be. The creationists have theirs, but the evolutionists have theirs, but they're both looking at the same observable uh, world and trying to interpret it scientifically, and that is to make a huge mistake. Because he's not talking about science, he's ta- talking about how, he's talking about why. And all throughout the Bible, you need to be asking the question, why? How did Joshua stop the sun uh, from moving? I don't know how he did that. We don't need to explain it scientifically. It's just what he said, what he did. There's no reason for us to try to delve into the mystery of physics and make physics agree with the Bible. Another thing is we don't need history and archaeology and any of that stuff to prove the Bible. Don't you believe it just on your own, on its own merits? Or do you need scientific proof? Because if you do, science is always changing, and so your view could change. And in 200 years from now, things are going to change. People are going to have different ideas about things than even we have today. The Bible is unchangeable. It answers these big questions in a way that it will make sense to people of all generations. And it tells us in the very beginning what happened to mankind. The betrayal that mankind uh, exhibited toward God. A cosmic betrayal. And Cain, last week we have this famous passage where Cain is talking to God and God's talking to Cain and Abel. Uh, Cain kills his brother and I won't go all that, but God asks Cain three questions. And those three questions, in those three questions, you can set up almost the pattern for everything else that goes for the rest of your Bible. It's really remarkable. So many things in these first three or four chapters are, are recapitulated. That's a big word, theological word, recapitulated. They repeat over and over and over in Scripture. Once you see the pattern, you go, oh my gosh, how did I miss that? How did I not see it? He asked Cain... God asks him, why are you angry? This is when Cain offered his sacrifice and God said, that's not okay. The reason he didn't accept the sacrifice was because it was just some of his stuff, some of his his, uh, crops. Abel, on the other hand, offered the fat and the firstborn. He offered the best of the best. And so the heart, God wants their heart, not their stuff, And he accepted Abel's sacrifice, didn't accept Cain. Cain got angry. And God asked him, why are you angry? And Cain didn't really answer him. And God warned him, sin is crouching. And if you are not careful, it will come in, it will devour you and take control of your heart. It describes our problem. Our problem, folks, anger is at the root of so much of our problems. And when we get angry, we want to strike out. And if we can't get a hold of God, we will strike out at anybody around us. It's where a lot of marital conflict comes from, problems with children and parents, problems at work, problems in the world at large. People are just 
given over to anger. And anger has its roots. And if you can diagnose the anger, you can find very often what the idolatry is that's driving the conflict. The second question is, that's our problem. Our problem is we're angry with God and we're angry with everybody and we're not, we're disillusioned. We think should be better for me. I work hard out to get more stuff. Why is your, where's your brother? That reveals our heart. He asked Cain, where's your brother? Our heart. Cain couldn't get to God, so he murdered God's image in, in the brother Abel. And then finally, what have you done? When he asked him, what have you done? He's not saying he didn't know what he had done. He was he was. He was scolding him for killing his brother, but he was also opening up a pathway back to God. He could have said, I killed my brother out of anger, and I'm, I'm, I know that you're just and merciful, and I fall down before you. Take my life if you want to. Forgive me if you want to. I'll accept whatever because you're a just judge. And, and, and then left his life in God's hands. But instead, he answers with, petulance and, and uh, rudeness and uh, hostility towards God. Am I my brother's keeper? And, uh, you know, and then I can't accept your judgment. Uh, people are going to want to kill me and so on. Abel's blood cries out for justice. It cries out for justice. And if God was just just, He would have killed Cain and everybody else, Right? He would have just destroyed the world and started over. Wiped the slate clean. Ollie, ollie, oxen free. But instead, God did not do away with His justice and He did not do away with His mercy and love. He puts them together in the blood of the seed. And in Hebrews 12, it says that the blood of Abel the blood of Abel was not comparable to the blood of Jesus, which spoke of a better sacrifice. One, the blood of Jesus joins mercy and love and justice and vengeance together in the substitution of Christ on the cross. And that pattern now is going to flow throughout all of Scripture. You're going to see it over and over and over. So let's look this morning now at the, 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 the life of Cain. It's very brief, and I'll tell you why in a second. We're going to look at the city. We're going to look at the seeds of these two, Cain and Abel, or Cain and Seth, actually. And then the two sons that are, that are mentioned at the end. What is the significance of the city? It says that Cain uh, left. He went and wandered in the land of Nod, and then he starts building this uh, the Land of Nod means wandering in Hebrew. So he was just in the, he was out away from the garden, wandering in the wilderness. And he builds a city. And once he builds this city, he names the city, this is significant, he names it after his son. What was significant about a city? Cities, just in the, in the modern world, we don't have cities like they had back then. A city, in fact, the word in Hebrew actually means a fort or a fortified place. It's not just a village. It's a city that has a wall. And cities represented security. Cities represented safety. Cities represented self-sufficiency. A society that could 
could go into the walls of the city, button it down, and then the enemies out there could not get in. Now you remember, God had told Cain, had said, if I'm out there, people are going to kill me, they're going to kill me. And God put a mark, graciously put a mark on Cain, and said, no, they're not going to kill you, I will protect you. He showed him very benevolent grace, I will protect you. But Cain still follows the path he was on. He didn't change his nature. And he builds a city to protect himself. And what's more, he names the city after his son. And this is the first place, at least in the Bible, where it's recorded where men are building cities and then they're naming it after their son. To build a city meant you were the boss of the city You were the mayor, the king, the general, the war. You ran the city. And what you did was you named it after your son so that it could be his because you're going to start accruing power. Power. You know, in most parts of the world, when they print money, who's on the money? Whoever the dictator or rulers are at that time. You know, we don't change. We have dead people on ours. And that's okay. We're celebrating a legacy of, of, of right and justice and so on and so forth. You may have a different view, but, you know, it's, it's just money. But in a lot of parts of the world, boy, if the, this guy loses office and another guy comes in, they reprint all the money. Because it represents power. And so to name the city after your son says, this is a city for man. Augustine wrote his great book. I have one in my office. It's that thick. Have you all seen The City of Man, City of God? The book by Augustine? It's nutty. And if anybody tells you they've read it, they're lying. (laughs) Nobody reads it. Everybody reads snippets from it, which is what I've done. Uh, But nobody reads the whole thing. You'd die before you could get through it. So, The City of Man represents a place where God is not present. And you know, the Israelites did not have a city for long, long, to hundreds of years. Finally, they built a city on Mount Zion, the city of the great king, and why God wanted them to build that city is why? Because he would be there. They needed a wall. They didn't didn't want to just be one of those crazy Christian people that presume all the time. No, no, they built a wall. They had armies. They had stuff. But they trusted in the Lord. In fact, in the Psalter, David said, You are my strong tower. You are my refuge. my My safety is in you. Cain is saying the opposite. He names it after his son. He's acquiring power. Naming gives you authorities, taking authority. Now he's creating a political system where he is the dictator. His son is going to be the next dictator. And there's going to be a son after him that's a dictator. Doesn't matter if they're just. Doesn't matter if they're righteous. It just matters if they have power and control. Glory immortality. You see, he knew he was going to die, but you know, if I name the city after myself and my son, then I have immortality going forward. So the pharaohs did this in Egypt. Uh, They built cities after their own names and and all of that. But along along with this, the significance of the city is this is where you start to see the blossoming of culture. And lots of authors have written about it. I read Dr. Kidner's commentary and 
and uh, Dr. Walkies and a couple others. And a lot of them uh, uh, all agree that what is going on in the city is the development of culture, sophisticated culture. And we see it in these two wives that Lamech takes. This is the seventh son from Adam through Cain. Lamech takes two wives. We'll talk about that in a second. And she has, an, and the first wife, Ada, she has Jabal and Jubal. Jabal is a, a farmer, a rancher. He raises livestock. He gets into developing and domesticating animals. So you see they're not just out hunting wild animals. They're domesticating and, and so they can be in the city and close to the city. And Jubal, he starts with music, the arts. And then you see uh, Tubal Cain, the son of the other wife, uh, he's a forger of bronze and iron. And so you can see that science and art and technology and community building and political systems, dictatorship in this case, Cain is the, the boss of this city and his son after him, monarchy, kingship, authority, all in the hands of one person. So you have this development of culture. And you know, folks, it's easy for us. And I know, I know that you've met people like this. Uh, it's easy to assume. And I'm going to tell you that we should not assume this. And if you want to come to Q&A, you can disagree next week. But not today. Culture is not bad in and of itself. In fact, culture is good. It's one of the, the divine things that God gave us the cultural mandate was to go and fill the earth with art, science, and technology, with beauty, with glory. We were to leave the garden and go out into the world and make it a paradise. There was paradise, and he said, now you guys multiply, fill the earth, go make the rest of the earth paradise. So there was a cultural mandate, what theologians call the cultural mandate, to go and extend culture. And you see that Cain's family is doing it. The problem is that the beginnings, here's what one commentator said, the beginnings of civilized life show a, character, a characteristic that potentially can be used for good or evil. You see, I have an iPhone. It's the greatest thing ever made. They, they are, yeah? Yeah. Don't sit there and act like you don't have a cell phone in your room. Well, you guys, we have to pray for you. Good night. This is a great thing, but it can also be a bad thing, right? So it's easy for us to assume that any technology, any art, anything, everything's bad. And to lump everything in one category. And you know, there are, there are little groups, sects that do this, Amish, don't you know, use cars or electricity or any of that stuff. And there's other groups. And, and it's on a continuum. You find people that are extreme. They want to get off the grid and get back to nature. Of course, they smell. Uh, and there are people that, you know, over here on the other side, there are people that think technology is the answer to all our problems. If we can just embed the iPhone in place of our heart, how much great would that be? Oh, we'd, we'd all be good, you know. And... Uh, Jeff Bezos would own the world. The only place he doesn't own right now is my home. And he's making his way there. So you, you, you get the idea. Culture is, it has potential for both good and bad. We don't need to eschew or get away from culture, but we don't have to go all the way into it either and just adopt whatever's out there. 
We're to be discerning about that. We're to be in the world, but not of the world, Jesus said. And the one problem that culture cannot fix, not the, the left side of culture or the right side of culture, not modernism and not uh, uh, the Amish, you know, uh, hunker and bunker down and try to live like they did in the 1800s. Those two extremes cannot fix one problem. That's the problem of guilt, the problem of shame, the problem of hatred, the problem of murder, the problem of violence. And so it can't solve this basic need that drives all the rest. And so we see, looking at verse 18, that was verse 17. Looking at verse 8, look down at verse 18. We're really going to look at the battle of the seeds. What God presents right away are two seeds. He, he rolls out the genealogy for Cain. And notice carefully, there's only seven in the genealogy. Uh, and, and then it ends with Lamech. Enoch, Irad, Mahujel, Mahushel, Lamech. That's it. And you see two branches of society. You see the image of God in, uh, in Abel and Seth and Adam and Eve. But you also see the, the, the arising of the seed of the serpent. So you have the seed of the woman, Eve, and you have the seed of the serpent. And folks, through the rest of the Bible, this is a powerful theme that runs through. There's, there's people that are trusting God and people that are not trusting God. And the people that are trusting God often have people in their midst who claim to be trusting God, but are what? They're not. They're just there. And there are people in the world, in that other system, who are are having to be there with the descendants of Cain, the scenes of the serpent, but they actually belong to God. And, And so the societies are mixed, but in God's mind, He knows who's who. And we're to know who's who as well. We're to be able to look in our own life and tell if we're with God or not with God. And so these two branches of humanity spring up. One with the image of the serpent, one with the image of God. And with chapter 4, at the end of 3, and and this chapter 4, and the rest of your Bible, which I've been showing you week by week, it's all the way to chapter 21 of Revelation, what you see is the battle between these two seeds. You're seeing the battle. Sin expands into the fabric of all of human existence. Why do children die? Why is there injustice in parts of the world? Why do people get these horrific diseases? Why are they born with birth defects that that ruin them? Why are some people born with their, their mental capacity is like really off and they become sociopaths or psychopaths. Why is the world like it is? The questions every one of us ask is because of this. Sin was invited into the garden by our ancestors and propagated. And that's what it did. It expands now into the fabric of everything. And the theme of the Bible, the very theme of the Bible, is for the people of God to go back into that wilderness Get in there and throw the devil out. Cast him out of the garden and do the cultural mandate. 
Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Jesus said it in Matthew 28. He just recapitulated Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. Sin is in the fabric of everything you see. And so when you look around, you say, well, how come that bad? How could God allow that? God did not bring that. We brought that. In a, in a cosmic sense, human beings are responsible for moral evil. We are responsible. And we have to own it and then push it back. Go at it, pushing it back. Enoch had a city. Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump to chapter... We're not going to look at chapter 5 next week. We'll look at something else. But Enoch, this Enoch builds a city. Seth's son, Enoch only lives 300 years and then he's translated into heaven. This Enoch, Cain's Enoch, got a city on the earth. The Enoch from Seth got a city in heaven. You see, Moses is starting to contrast these two seeds and it lay before Israel and us what our ultimate meaning is. What our ultimate purpose? Some of you are wondering, you know, what is my purpose in life? Some people despair of life. They find no longer any value or any purpose and end up taking their lives or giving up on life. They continue to live but just give up. This is setting up a pattern where we are to be people who not only are deeply invested in the world around us, this world, in bringing it back from the chaos that Adam and Eve introduced. We're to be bringing it back. And, but we're also to have one eye on the glory and eternity of God. Like, you know, one eye going is like a gecko, you know. So if you can look at both and bring them in, then you have both and you can hold them in tension. The genealogy of Cain, I just told you in this, this passage, is very sparse. It's only in this one verse. But the genealogy for Uh, Seth's descendants is a whole chapter and beyond. We're going to skip that genealogy except for a few things. This genealogy of Cain ends with Lamech. And Lamech's words, his poem, his song at the end is a song of vengeance and war and murder and violence. He celebrates it. He sings it to his wives. The genealogy of Seth ends with another Lamech. And this Lamech is the father of Noah. One Lamech wants to kill, murder, and destroy. The other Lamech names his son, his progeny. This this one, here's what he said. This one, Noah, this one shall bring us relief, rest, comfort from the work and painful toil. He's, He's going to Save us. Magnificent. And this song that Lamech sings, look at the the song is offset there in verses 23 and 24. Um, I've killed killed a man, he says. A man is uh, just a a, a male. A young man. That word, uh, it's yeled, I think in Hebrew if I'm right. It's yeled, and yeled is a child. A little child, very small, probably not a teenager. 
And what happened, we don't know the circumstances, but all this child did was wound him somehow, strike him, maybe slapped at him or something, and he kills the child. Then he celebrates the child's death. And he says, not only do I want seven, I want 77-fold vengeance. This is a man who's burning with hatred, burning with anger, and he wants to spread it. He exults in it. And he's a polygamist. And don't think that the Bible endorses polygamy. It does not. In fact, from the introduction of polygamy into the Scriptures, everything associated with polygamy is bad. Nothing good comes of it. Nothing. But it's there, and it is the onset of oppression, murder, violence, generational violence, blood feuds. Sin becomes prodigious in its advancement. And Lamech exalts in the murder. He does it with impunity, as if there's no God. He just exalts in it. And you know people like this. I mean, we've seen them on TV. These uh, a few years ago, you know, ISIS is uh, out of the way right now. At least they're underground. You know, they were bringing people out and they were filming the murder and decapitation of people, sometimes as many as 30 at a time. Horrifying. And then they would, they would shout and yell. They were happy about it. They were glad they had done it. And we're sitting back going, how can anybody be like that? It was happening a long time ago. This is nothing new. And when we find our own hearts being drawn toward that kind of anger, that kind of vengeance, that kind of hatred, red flag, red flag, something's wrong, don't, sin is crouching at the door, you've got to just push it out, fight back, otherwise it will take over. Yes? You know it will. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, the lex talionis, in the, in the law of Moses, we look at that as being harsh. The lex talionis, the eye for eye, tooth for tooth, was a binary expression of equality and justice. It was to limit injustice. It was to limit violence. Saying, you know, if, if a guy breaks your tooth, you don't murder him and his whole family and take his farm. You know, you just knock out his tooth. Now, I don't know if they were meaning that literally or not. The lex talionis may have been figurative in its its expression. What he's saying is, life for life, tooth for tooth, eye for eye. But not what this guy did. He goes and kills a child for a wound, and it's obscene. It's lopsided. It's disproportionate. Extreme in its hatred. So you can see what's going on. You're seeing the setup for a world in which violence, listen, if it is not curbed by the children of God, the seed of the woman, the people that are pushing, uh, who, who represent God Almighty, if we're not out there on the front lines when it comes to righteousness and justice, what Rick prayed in his prayer this morning, justice and righteousness and equality in social issues, in sin issues, in everything. If we're not going to be critical and nuanced thinkers about these things, we are going to lose our prophetic voice and have nothing to say. And we just get relegated to another lobby group that wants its rights. 
And there are a lot of churches, and Christ the King is one of them, who are appealing to our members, appealing to you to take a different posture, not somewhere in the middle, but a gospel posture. And you see this gospel posture in the third part, verse 25, two sons. This is significant, folks. It's not just a history, a record. It has real, real importance and meaning. Verse 25, Adam and Eve... Uh, knew each other again. They had, they had intimacy again, sexual relations. And it's dischronologized. Now, all the stuff that happened to uh, Cain and Lamech and all these generations that are running along there afterwards is not saying that Adam and Eve sat back and didn't, you know, have any more kids until all this happened. It's a very common thing in ancient literature where they would dischronologize. They would just grab something and bring it back, take it out of its chronology. And so you don't want to read this just straight through like this is just... Otherwise, you know, Adam and Eve have been sitting around for several hundred years not having any more children. And then they, oh, Lamech just showed up, now we can start again. That's not what happened. They start having kids right away. So what he's saying is, Adam and Eve had this next son... And in faith, listen to this folks, exciting. In faith, you see, Adam and Eve knew what they had done and God clothed them and he, he made things right for them. And they believed that promise about the seed. And you see it here because they name their son Seth. And she says, Eve says it in her little, her little song. She says, God appointed for me another seed instead of Abel. Because Cain killed him. And Seth means, the word Seth means appointed. It means God granted him or assigned him this role to fill that Abel couldn't because he was killed. Are you, are you with me? So God appoints Seth. He sets him, another way to interpret Seth is he's someone who is set in place for a purpose, to accomplish a goal, to take the place of the seed that was murdered, Abel. Then look at the next part, verse 26. Seth names his son Enosh, and at that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. The word Enosh, and you don't want to make too much of these words, but in this case, they are significant. Seth means appointed, he has a purpose, he's set in place for this reason. Enosh means weakness. Now look at the contrast that Moses is drawing. Moses is out there telling the people of Israel, we're going to go in and take over this land. And the first thing we're going to do, the first thing we're going to encounter was the greatest fortification that was known in the ancient Near East at that time, the city of Jericho. And if you read the archaeology on Jericho, it's astounding. This was impregnable. There was no way to breach the city of Jericho, its walls, its fortifications. The first thing they're going to tear down is Jericho. And how do they do it? By singing and playing music and worshiping God. Not by military force, not by power of arms, but by weakness by weakness. And Moses is saying something profound here, folks. He's saying, our way, the way of the the seed, the way of Seth, the way of the followers of God Almighty, the Lord, 
The way is in weakness, not in power, not in strength. It's not in money. It's not in numbers. It's in God. It trusting Him. Trusting Him is what will give us strength. And Eve demonstrates that. Seth demonstrates his faith in naming his son weakness. Why didn't he name him power and strength and I'm the seed and I'm the righteous, I'm the one that's going to conquer? Why didn't he do that? Instead, he glo- where Lamech glories in his murder and his violence and his, his oppression of women and all the rest, he, 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 he goes and glories in that. What does Seth glory in? He boasts in not grasping power, not having a city, not having a fortress, not having a place. And for generations, these people wandered and wandered. In fact, Abraham was a wanderer. And it says he was looking for the city whose builder and maker was God. He was looking for a city not made with hands. You see, the contrast is incredible. The the Israelites had just come out of Egypt, which was filled with what? Cities. Cities they built for the Egyptians. With their own sweat and blood, their lives. And Moses is saying, that's not the way. We're not going to build bigger cities. We're going to be weak. Weakness is the way. And in that weakness, what do you see the seed of the woman doing? Calling on the name of the Lord. Not building up armies. Not piling up money. Not getting uh, biz jets for their pastors. Although, I, I think you should get me one. But, yeah, you get the point. He's telling them, here's how you're going to live life. And the message is the same to you and me, folks. And I've got to tell you, i got to say this because if you don't get it, you're going to be disappointed in this life. How do we live life outside the garden, in the wilderness, on the pilgrimage that is much of our faith? How do we live that already, not yet? The kingdom of God is already, but it's not consummated yet. How do we live there? How do you do that? How do you move outside and and become effective in pushing back, as Rick says, pushing back the thorns, beating back the darkness? How, How do we do that? And it's in everything you do. Your career, your life, your education, your family, your friends, your church, your relationships, your civic obligation. Everything you do can become worship. And of course, Sunday morning is special worship because we all gather together. But when you're out there and you're in your job and you've got surrounded by wilderness and chaos, how do you live? You live by calling on the name of the Lord, not looking for a city or power, but looking for the one who was weak. The one who gave up power. Listen, let me finish with this. I hope you listen to every word of this. Jesus was approached by some Gentiles. They wanted to speak to Him. We don't know if they ever got to speak to Him. They went to Andrew and the... Uh, Nathaniel and they went and told or Philip and they went and told Jesus there's some Gentiles here you know they weren't supposed to talk to Gentiles he says I'm Gentiles here and they want to talk to you and instead of saying sure I'll see them or no I won't see them Jesus says this very enigmatic listen 
The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, that's weakness. If it dies, it bears much fruit. Now my soul is troubled. Weakness. My soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I was appointed. I was named. I was called. You're up to bat, Jesus. You're going to win for everybody else. I came. I am Seth. I've come to this hour. His appointed hour. Father, Glorify your name. How's he going to get his name glorified? Listen. A voice from heaven, I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. Now judgment has come into the world. Jesus responds. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. You see, he's going to crush the serpent. He's going to crush the serpent and all of his evil works. Jesus is going to do that. How? If I, even I myself, am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to me. And John goes on and comments and says, He's telling us how He's going to die. He's telling us how He's going to die. Not as a hero with an army and die in battle. No, no. He's going to die naked on a cross in the most weak and helpless and defenseless posture any human being can be. He's going to be spread out with no way to even hold his body up. He will suffocate on the cross because he can't exhale. He will die of asphyxiation and blood loss and beating and torture, and never lift a finger. Weakness. And folks, until we, the church of God, until us, until we learn this and get it down into our bones that we're not going to win by strength, we're not going to win by money and by power, we're going to win through this man, Jesus Christ, by calling on His name every minute, every day, every hour of your life, come what may. You may be facing some hard things, but we often do. Maybe you've already faced them and you're trying to get over it or move on and make something out of your life. Okay, call on the name of the Lord. There isn't any other way. He turned weakness into strength on the cross for us and as us. And I hope you'll trust Him. Let's pray. Father, we sure thank you for your kindness and mercy that endures forever. There's, what can we say to these things? My goodness, they take our breath away. And we ask, Father, that you would give us the strength to trust you and call on your name, no matter what we're facing, no matter how old or young we are, no matter what our circumstances. We may be in some tough places right now. I know a lot of people are. 
But we pray, Father, please give us the strength to call on you, to trust the one who died for us in weakness. And in doing so, gave us a strength that the the world cannot touch. It cannot take it away. We pray this in, in that wonderful name, that name of Jesus. Amen.